The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Okay, you got a Bible. We need to get to Psalm 107. It's a long one. This begins book five of the Psalter. Psalm 107. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them out of their distresses. He led them forth by the right way, and they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, bound in affliction and irons, because they rebelled against the words of God and despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore he brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and he saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. For he has broken the gates of bronze and cut bars of iron in two. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and he saved them out of their distresses. He sent his word and healed them and delivered them from their destructions. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare his works with rejoicing. Those who go down to the sea in ships, who do business on great waters, they see the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens, they go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. They reel to and fro and stagger like a drunken man and are at the wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their desired haven. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt him also in the assembly of the people and praise him in the company of the elders. He turns rivers into a wilderness and the waters into dry ground, a fruitful land into barrenness for the wickedness of those who dwell in it. He turns a wilderness into pools of water and dry land into water springs. There he makes the hungry dwell that they may establish a city for a dwelling place and sow fields and plant vineyards that they may yield a fruitful harvest. 
he also blesses them and they multiply greatly and he does not let their cattle decrease when they are diminished and brought low through oppression affliction and sorrow he pours contempt on princes and causes them to wander in the wilderness where there is no way yet he sets the poor on high far from affliction and makes their families like a flock the righteous see it and rejoice and all iniquity stops its mouth Whoever is wise will observe these things, and they will understand the loving kindness of the Lord. Today we're in Joshua 24. It's verses 16 through 28. This is entitled, For He is a Holy God. It's part three. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. Then the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. Now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and set it up under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. There are countless ways to conduct a church service. For the most part, if the heart is right in the pastor, if he is properly directed to the truth of the Lord, and he competently handles the word, the way the service is conducted will be more up to the preferences of the pastor and the congregants than anything else. People go where they feel comfortable. This is why I have never had a problem with people coming once to the superior word and then not returning. They didn't benefit from what I was saying in the way that they would prefer. Some pastors can take a passage from Joshua, say almost nothing about the passage itself, and still give a sermon that edifies the people who listen. That isn't my style, but as long as he is preaching a message in line with the word in some manner, who could argue against it? As for what I believe is important in a church and why I do things that I do, it is because being grounded in the word is the surest way of not being misled or completely swept away from the faith. If you want to know the importance of people being grounded, listen to these words from Adam Clark based on his evaluation of Joshua 24, verse 16. God forbid that we should forsake the Lord. That they were now sincere, meaning the people speaking to Joshua, cannot be reasonably doubted. For they served the Lord all the days of Joshua and the elders that outlived him. 
Joshua 24:31. But afterwards they turned aside and did serve other gods. It is ordinary, says Mr. Trapp, for the many-headed multitude to turn with the stream, to be of the same religion with their superiors. Thus at Rome, in Diocletian's time, they were pagans. In Constantine's time, Christians. In Constantinus, Arians. In Julian's, apostates. And in Jovinian's, Christians again. And all this within less than the age of a man. It is therefore a good thing that the heart be established with grace. Our text verse comes from 1 Timothy 4, it is verse 6. If you instruct the brethren in these things, you will be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith and of the good doctrine which you have carefully followed. In the church where I was ordained, a defective person was selected to be the pastor, and he ran the church, a big and thriving one, right into the ground. That can and it does happen. But the thing that shocked me most was where some of the people who attended went after they left the church. Some went off to charismatic churches. Some became full-blown Calvinists. Some to reformed churches. And some have now taken the path down woke way. Others stopped going to church and so on. None of those things were because of failed doctrine by the previous pastors. Rather, their doctrine was sound and it was biblically based. The problem then had to be that the congregants didn't regard learning the word and doctrine as an important part of their walk. That bothered me, and it continues to bother me. Imagine what Clark said. In the span of a single lifetime, Rome converted several times between some pretty disparate beliefs. What we need as people are warnings, real sincere warnings about the cost of not paying heed to instruction. Here in the United States, we didn't pay heed to our founding father's words. We often don't pay heed to street signs or to other laws that will keep us from harm. We ignore our consciences, too. One thing I constantly warn about in this church is doctrine. Pay heed to yourself and to your doctrine. I can't think of anything more important to the believer in Christ than that one point. Joshua will warn the people about this today. Will Israel pay heed? Great lessons such as this are to be found in his superior word. And so let us turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I have two separate thoughts for you today. The first is a witness to you. It's verses 16 through 28. Verse 16, so the people answered and said, far be it from us. It is the same expression used in Joshua 22, verse 29. Chalilah lanu, profane thing to us. The idea itself is utterly repugnant to them. It would be something that was defiling in and of itself, and it would be a mark of apostasy. That is then further explained with the words, verse 16 continuing, that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. May azov et Yehovah la'avod Elohim acharim from forsaking Jehovah to serve God's other. The people are adamant that they will remain faithful to the Lord and not forsake him. In Joshua 22, the eastern tribes were accused of rebellion, thus eliciting their response of denial. Here, Joshua is certain they will forsake him. It says in Joshua 22:29, far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn from following the Lord this day. Joshua 24, 16, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. There is no doubt about their sincerity. 
But as Adam Clark noted, there is also the truth that people will closely follow a human leader at the expense of faithful obedience to the Lord. For now, however, the people explain the reason for their firm stand. Verse 17, for the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt. It is an emphatic statement that includes a verb being used as a noun. Ki Yehovah Eloheinu hu ha ma'ale otanu ve'et avotenu. For Yehovah our God, he, the bringer up, us and our fathers. Their adamant proclamation is based on the fact that it was the Lord who delivered them. Holding to this in the future will require at least two things. One, that the people will tell about the deeds of the Lord to the next generations. And two, that the people will have faith that what they are told is true. Now, I was thinking about this. Think of Adam. He was created, right? He was 930 years old, and not long after he died, 1656 year of the world, God had to destroy the entire world. Most of the people that were destroyed could have gone to Adam and said, were you really created? Did you really not have a parent? I mean, people just don't even think. They let things escape them. They just let things escape them, and the whole world was destroyed because of it. To get this, we can look at any major discipline in Scripture, such as creation, salvation, the resurrection, and so on. For example, to hold to the creation narrative, we need to read about it in the Bible. However, we also need to believe what it says is true. As for Israel, their words continue with, verse 17 going on, from the house of bondage. Rather, mibet avadim, from house slaves. They were slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought them out to be free men. However, when one is under law, he is in bondage. That's Galatians 4.24, a slave to the law. Jesus, Peter, and Paul each acknowledged this in their words. Next, they say, verse 17 continues, who did those great signs in our sight. And who did to our eyes the signs, the great, the these. There is no need to take the words of verse 18, which include the Amorites, and thus say that this is only speaking of things that occurred prior to their encountering the Amorites. The people are making a general statement that the Lord had done great things in their sight from the time they left Egypt until that day. They are speaking of the absolute trustworthiness of the Lord to preserve them from start to finish. This is stated next, saying, verse 17 continues, and preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the people through whom we passed. The wording is more specific. And kept us in all the way which we walked in and in all the peoples which we passed in their midst. As just noted, this does not have to exclude what is next said. It is an all-inclusive statement of protection from beginning to end. The next words go from Israel's protection to the dispossession of the enemies. Verse 18, And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwell in the land. The word and in this verse probably should be taken as even. In other words, the Amorite is being used collectively to speak of all of the people. And drove out Yehovah, 
all the peoples, even the Amorite, dwelled the land before our faces. There were many people groups in Canaan, identified by the plural peoples. However, the Amorite has been a term used in this chapter to speak of all of them as one group. Because of this faithful attention by the Lord as he tended to Israel, verse 18 continues, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. The words are emphatic. Gam anachnu avod et Yehovah ki hu Eloheinu. Also, we will serve Yehovah, for he our God. This is the response to Joshua's words of verse 15. They have worked through the reason for it before stating it. Joshua presented them with a list of gods they could choose from, and then he said whom he would serve. Israel countered with all that the Lord had done for them, and thus they affirm he is their God. In verse 15, I and my house, we will serve Na'avod Yehovah. Verse 18, also we will serve Na'avod Yehovah for he our God. Verse 19, but Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord. The word cannot can be construed in different ways. Rather, Vayomer Yehoshua el ha'am lo tukelu la'avod et Yehovah. And said Joshua unto the people, no, you able to serve Yehovah. The word yakol speaks of power or ability. Joshua doesn't tell them that they cannot serve the Lord as if they were not permitted to do so, but because they are not able to do so. It is something beyond their ability to perform. He next gives the emphatic reason for this. Verse 19 continues, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. In the first clause, Joshua uses the majestic plural Elohim, united with the plural holies, thus giving the superlative sense of the most holy. Ki Elohim kedoshim hu el kano hu. For God holies, he, God jealous, he. Both clauses are emphatic. The first speaks of the many perfections of the Lord, while the second refers to the adamant state in which he guards his name. It is because of this that Israel is not able to serve him. Joshua already knows that they are prone to fail and of their hard-headedness and obstinance in recklessly pursuing sin. Verse 19 continues, for he will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. It is incorrect. Yisa le pishachem u le chatotechem. He will not bear to your transgression and even to your sins. Rather than forgive, it means that the Lord will not put up with their wrongdoing. This is then defined by Joshua, first in the singular, your transgression. This is the only time that the noun pesha, or transgression, is used in the book of Joshua. It signifies a state of national revolt. He notes the collective nature of that by saying, your sins. The sins of the people, when unchecked through punishment or repentance, become a national transgression. With that, Joshua again brings in the thought of serving other gods. Verse 20, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good. It is not a conditional statement, if, but an adamant, when. Ki ta'azvu et Yehovah ve'avadtem Elohe nechar ve'shav ve'hera lachem ve'chila etchem achare asher hetiv lachem. When you forsake Yehovah and serve God's foreign, and he turns, and he does evil to you, and he finishes you, 
after which he has done good to you. Joshua takes their words of verse 16 and turns them around. Verse 16, profane thing to us from forsaking Jehovah to serve God's other. Verse 20, when you forsake Jehovah and serve God's foreign. The word translated as foreign is nakar. It comes from the verb nakar, which signifies to recognize. They have claimed that they know the Lord by the great things he has done in their sight. And yet Joshua says they will forsake him and recognize foreign gods rather than him. One could say that verses like Malachi 3, 6 cannot be true. It says, for I am the Lord, I do not change. If God treats Israel in one manner and then turns and treats them in another manner, then it must be that the Lord has changed. Incorrect. It is Israel that changes in relation to the Lord. Joshua is making this plain and clear. The response of the Lord to the actions of the people is consistent with his holy and jealous nature. Throughout Israel's history, this truth will be on display, and yet Israel will rarely comprehend or even acknowledge it. Not perceiving that Joshua knows better than they do, they respond again. Verse 21, and the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua has spoken clearly and emphatically concerning the matter. Israel has responded assuredly to him that they will, in fact, prove him wrong. Notice the structure from verse 18, and I in my house, we will serve Naavod Yehovah. Verse 18, also we will serve Naavod Yehovah, for he our God. And then verse 19, and Joshua said unto the people, know you able to serve Naavod Yehovah. And then this verse, and said the people to Joshua, no, for Yehovah, we will serve Naavod. Their response of lo ki, no for, is a claim that they are able to serve him and that they will serve him. Because of their adamant proclamation, it next says, verse 22, so Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. Rather than against yourselves, it reads, edim atem bachem ki atem bechartem lachem et Yehovah laavod oto. Witnesses you in yourselves, for you have chosen to you Yehovah to serve him. The words in yourselves may ultimately be a witness against them, but the immediate sense is that they have now made the choice that was previously set before them in verse 15. Verse 15, and if evil in your eyes to serve Jehovah, choose Bahar to you the day whom you will surely serve. And then verse 22, witnesses you in yourselves for you have chosen Bahar to you, Jehovah, to serve him. With the choice acknowledged by Joshua, the people respond accordingly. Verse 22 continues, and they said, we are witnesses. Vayomeru edim, and they said, witnesses. They have made the choice and witnessed in themselves that it is so. Therefore, they are accountable for the words they have spoken. In the future, if they fail to serve the Lord, their words will be witnesses against them. Of this verse, the pulpit commentary says, and it is well to observe that such an excuse never was pleaded afterwards, that the obligation, though evaded, was never disavowed. I just can't agree with that. To ask, why has this happened to us is to implicitly avow that there is no guilt on their part. 
But this type of sentiment is seen repeatedly later in their history. A classic example of this is found in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 16, and it shall be when you show this people all these words and they say to you, why has the Lord pronounced all this great disaster against us? Or what is our iniquity? Or what is our sin that we have committed against the Lord our God? Then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord. They have walked after other gods and have served them and worshiped them and have forsaken me and not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart so that no one listens to me. Therefore, I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. It could be that the instruction to the people was so lacking that they had no idea they were not to follow, serve, and worship other gods. But that seems much less likely than that they ignored their obvious guilt. The evidence of this is found in Israel today as well as the church. What the Lord expects is known to both, but that is disavowed as frequently as leaves fall in the autumn. Here is another explicit example in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 44. Then all the men who knew that their wives had burned incense to other gods, with all the women who stood by, a great multitude, and all the people who dwelt in the land of Egypt, in Pathros, answered Jeremiah, saying, as for the word you have spoken to us in the name of the Lord, we will not listen to you, but we will certainly do whatever has gone out of our own mouth to burn incense to the queen of heaven and pour out drink offerings to her as we have done. We and our fathers, our kings and our princes in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. For then we had plenty of food, were well off and saw no trouble. But since we stopped burning incense to the queen of heaven and pouring out drink offerings to her, we have lacked everything and have been consumed by the sword and by famine. The people had been given the word of the Lord from Moses. Jeremiah also spoke the word of the Lord for them, and yet they disavowed their conduct as being responsible for their troubles. As for the people's words to Joshua, he next directs them accordingly. Verse 23, now therefore, he said, Put away the foreign gods which are among you. And now put away gods the foreign which in your midst. It isn't known if Joshua is speaking instructionally in an if-then manner or if he is actually implying that there are foreign gods to be found among the people. It's hard to imagine that, especially with the mandates of the law so obviously fresh among the people. But it is not impossible. The account in Judges 2, if connected to this account now, does seem to imply it, though. It seems his words are instructional. If you see them among you, put them away. This also appears likely based on verse 31, saying that Israel served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Either way, if there were foreign gods among them, they are privately held, not publicly on display, as they will be in the future. Verse 23 continues, and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. Vehatu et levavchem el Yehovah Elohei Yisrael. And extend to your heart unto Yehovah God Israel. 
This statement makes me think that the previous clause was, in fact, instructional. He is telling them this as a guide and a guard into the future, not an accusation about their conduct in the present. This is more likely because there is no follow-up to his words noted by the people, as the Bible is accustomed to providing when such is the case. Okay, we'll go get rid of the foreign gods among us. Verse 24, And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God we will serve, and his voice we will obey. Et Yehovah Eloheinu na'avod ubekolo nishma. Yehovah our God, we will serve, and in his voice we will hear. This is the third time this has been stated. From verses 16 and 18, and answered the people and said, Also we will serve na'avod Yehovah for he our God. Verse 21, and said the people to Joshua, No, for Yehovah we will serve na'avod. And then now in verse 24, and said the people to Joshua, Yehovah our God, we will serve na'avod. And in his voice we will hear. The threefold repetition stands as an emphatic and complete witness to the matter. As such, their words are binding upon themselves, those under them and those who follow them. Because of this, it next says, verse 25, So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. And cut Joshua covenant to the people in the day, the it. To cut a covenant means to sacrifice an animal or animals to solidify the matter. This was seen, for example, in Exodus 24. And Moses took half the blood and put it in basins and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people and said, this is the blood of the covenant, which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. This is explained in detail in Hebrews chapter nine. There it says, for where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. Therefore, not even the first covenant was dedicated without blood. For when Moses had spoken every precept to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of calves and goats with water, scarlet wool, and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant which God has commanded you. <laughs> Then likewise, he sprinkled with blood both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry. And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. With that understood, it next says, verse 25 continues, and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Almost every translation says them, but that is not what it says. Vayasem lo chok umishpat bishchem and set to him statute and ordinance in Shechem. Exactly what this means is hard to say. It is very similar to Exodus 15.25, where it says of Moses, there set to him statute and ordinance, and there he tested him. With only a few exceptions, everyone incorrectly translates the pronoun as them. But does it mean the Lord set the statute for Moses, and there the Lord tested him? Or does it refer to Israel in the singular? The next verse in Exodus is all in the singular as well. My guess is that he was speaking solely to Moses as the leader of his people and thus representative of all the people, the singular being taken for the collective. Here in Joshua, it cannot be 
covenant, as in set to the covenant, a statute and an ordinance. This is because the word berit is feminine. Thus, the words of this clause would have a gender mismatch. It may be referring to Israel as a single entity, or it may be referring to the Lord. Because the preceding verses have presented the voluntary words of the people concerning their serving the Lord, he being the reference is not out of possibility. It would take us back to the opening words of the chapter, Joshua 24, verse 1, and gather Joshua, all tribes Israel, Shechem word, and called to elders Israel, and to his heads, and to his judges, and to his officers, and stationed themselves before the God. And then verse 24, 25, and cut Joshua covenant to the people in the day, the it, and set to him, the Lord, statute and ordinance in Shechem. If so, the statute and ordinance would not be for the Lord to obey, but for him to monitor concerning the people's obedience. That seems more likely based on what is coming in the next two verses. Verse 26, then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And wrote Joshua the words, the these, in book, law, God. The big question here is, what words did he write? Is it only what has transpired here in chapter 24? Or does it mean the whole book of Joshua, inclusive of these words? This takes us back to what was said in the first sermon of chapter 24. If this gathering at Shechem is the same as that recorded in Joshua 8, it would mean that the law was read at this time, and it would then follow logically that Joshua would read what he had compiled. Charles Ellicott says concerning this verse, primarily these words appear to refer to the transaction just recorded. But it must be observed that this is also the second signature among the sacred writers of the Old Testament. The first is that of Moses in Deuteronomy 31 verse 9, where it says Moses wrote this law and delivered it unto the priests and so on. The next signature after Joshua's is that of Samuel. It's found in 1 Samuel 10:25. Samuel told the people the manner of the kingdom and wrote it in the, not a, book and laid it up before the Lord. We have here a clue to the authorship of the Old Testament and to the view of the writers who succeeded Moses in what they did. They did not look upon themselves as writers of distinct books, but as authorized to add their part to the book already written to write what was assigned to them in the book of the law of God. The unity of Holy Scripture is thus seen to have been an essential feature of the Bible from the very first. Whether this is only referring to the words of chapter 24 or all of Joshua's writings, it next says, verse 26 continues, and he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. Rather, and took stone, whopping, and set it up there under the oak, which in sanctuary, Yehovah. The stone is a witness between the two parties to the covenant that has been set forth. This is why my thoughts about the use of the singular in the previous verse may be referring to the Lord. The statute and judgment were set before him, the God, to monitor. The stone stands as a witness to this fact. 
standing under the tree indicates that this may have been the same tree that was standing when this occurred from Genesis 35. And Jacob said to his household and to all who are with him, put away the foreign gods that are among you. Purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go up to Bethel and I will make an altar there to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me in the way which I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods which were in their hands and the earrings which were in their ears and Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree which was by Shechem. As that was hundreds of years earlier, that tree is either very old or another tree is grown in its place. Either way, the stone now being erected is a witness to Israel of the past and of what is expected in the future. Saying it is in the sanctuary of the Lord means that it is in the place set apart as holy to the Lord. That was carefully detailed in the first sermon of chapter 24, where it noted altars built by both Avraham and Jacob in this area. Verse 27, and Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness to us. Notice that Joshua includes himself in the address. Behold, the stone, the this, shall be to us to witness. The stone is personified here, indicating that it stands as representative of the Lord who is the other party involved in the covenant. To ignore that the Lord heard the words by ignoring the covenant based on the words would make them as senseless as the inanimate stone that is used to represent the Lord. As for the stone, regardless as to whether or not these events are occurring at the same time as the ceremony in Joshua 8, it is certain that the great and impressive altar that was built in that chapter was already standing. As this is so, this stone was not used in the building of the altar, even though it was in that area. As such, it makes its own picture of Jesus. From Psalm 118, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. The altar pictured Christ, but this stone does as well because it stands as representative of the covenant that has been cut between Israel and the Lord. As it next says, verse 27 continues, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. The stone, representing the words of the Lord from verses 24, 2 through 13, is said to have heard This then is to be a permanent reminder of what he said. When it is seen, what was said is to be called to mind. However, because this account about the stone is recorded in the continuing Torah of God, those words also call to mind the stone each time they are read. As such, whether physically standing in front of a person or being read out of the law, verse 27 continues, it shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. There is a strong emphasis in the words, And it shall be in you to witness, lest you surely lie in your God. The word kahash comes from a primitive root, meaning to be untrue in word or in deed. The people have repeatedly said that they will serve the Lord. Thus, if they fail to do this by serving other gods, they will have lied against the Lord. The warning is set. With that, it next says, verse 28 finishes with, so Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. It is more succinct. And sent Joshua, the people, man to his inheritance. 
This ends the main narrative portion of the book of Joshua. The final five verses will detail the death and burial of Joshua, along with a few other key points relevant to close out the book. Let us fear the Lord all our days, serving in sincerity and truth as well. He is worthy of all our praise, for he has saved us from the clutches of hell. It was by grace alone that we have been saved. It was solely by the merits of our Lord Jesus. By his works alone, the path was paved. See, such wonderful things he has done for us. Praises to our God and King. All glory and honor belong to him alone. For all of eternity, to him we shall sing. He is the faithful witness, the rejected stone. This was the Lord's doing, so marvelous in our eyes. He is Jesus, our hope and our heavenly prize. Our second thought today is explaining the passage. Despite the large number of verses that comprise these past three sermons, the explanation of why they are recorded is short and simple to understand. Many of the anticipations of Christ have been given already as we have gone through the verses, and so there's no need to repeat them now. Simply stated, Joshua 24 began with all of the tribes being gathered together at Shechem. As has been seen in previous sermons, Shechem means responsibility, but more specifically, having a sense of responsibility. It looks to the believer who understands his violation of the law and has accepted Christ's fulfillment of it. Throughout Joshua, that has been seen again and again in typology. Christ fulfilled the law, Christ died in fulfillment of the law, and so on. The number of pictures concerning this have been abundant. These people are not under law, but under grace. This is what the words to the people from the Lord in verses 2 through 13 clearly indicated. Everything was showing how God, working to maintain the proper worship of the Lord, continued his plan of redemption. He called out Abraham from the land where they served other gods. He led them to Canaan and gave him Isaac. To Isaac was given Jacob. However, a note about Esau comes right out of the blue. To Esau, I gave the mountains of Seir to possess. That is a picture of the Lord allowing the made man, meaning Adam and his descendants, to continue in the world with their awareness of sin, pictured by Mount Seir, even if he is not imputed sin, because sin is not imputed where there is no law. That's Romans 5.13. In the meantime, the Lord called out a particular group of people to ensure that the proper worship of the Lord continued. As was noted, the one main point that was strikingly omitted out of all of the Lord's words from Abraham all the way through is any mention of the law. Everything the Lord stated constituted his grace being bestowed upon this select line without any hint of them having earned what they received. This went even to the granting of land, cities, vineyards, and olive groves. All Israel had to do was to simply believe, follow, and receive. Everything in those details from the calling of Abraham on has anticipated the coming of the Messiah. It was he who each person in the line of picture promised. It was he who was anticipated in the exodus from Egypt, then the time of their rejection of him in the wilderness. He was the one anticipated in all of the battles leading up to and following their entrance into Canaan. It was his fulfillment of the law, which remained unstated to the people to demonstrate this, that secured their inheritance for them. He is both the provider of the inheritance and the reason for it. All of it was noted as grace upon his people. Joshua is coming to a close. Israel has its inheritance and it will dwell in it. 
This will be true with Israel of the future when they finally receive Jesus as a nation. But the heart of man is prone to wander. This is the reason for the continuous back and forth between Joshua and the people in today's verses. Israel will someday receive the Lord, but even after this, they must be faithful to him. This final passage of Joshua is given to warn them of that. Even during the millennial reign of Christ, they will have free will, and they will need to hold fast to the Lord, serving him. Though the number of verses concerning this is only a few, it is still evident that the people can choose or reject Jesus. A notable example of this is found in Isaiah chapter 65, speaking of the millennial reign. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner, now he's talking about the people of Israel, the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. Israel is being told in typology that just because they will be nationally saved, they can depart from the Lord, and so they must be careful to properly serve him. Both Joshua and the stone picture Jesus. He is the one to establish the faith, and he is the witness to the fact that Israel has agreed to the proper worship of him, because he is the incarnate Lord God. This is more certain because it says that before he set up the stone, Joshua wrote those words in the book of the law of God. Jesus is the incarnate word. That which is written in the Torah of God is written in anticipation of him. Whether or not the stone that Joshua set up there is still there or not is irrelevant. It is written in the word, and thus it is an eternal testament to the stone, which is the witness of what is recorded there. The Lord gave Israel a history lesson to remind them of where they had come from, why they were there, and how that came about. They are being told to hold fast to the Lord who saved them by grace. It may even be that Israel of the future will read this final chapter of Joshua, notice the remarkable lack of any mention of the law, and finally realize that they have been pursuing the wrong avenue of pleasing God all along. They look to the law as a means to an end when in fact it has nothing to do with their being right with God except as it is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. As just said a moment ago, Jesus is the true focal point for the worship of God because he is the Lord God. Whatever worship Israel conducts in the millennium will be centered on this fact. For those in the church who believe this, our future is already set. There's no need to be admonished of such things. What we need to be admonished about is living in a right and proper manner while we are here. Though our salvation is not in question, our lives will be less fulfilling apart from holy and obedient living, and our rewards will be based upon that. And more, if we let our guard down, our own children and those around us may be the ones to find out all too late that we failed to live uprightly. It is our responsibility to do this as Christians and to share the reason for the hope that we have with those we encounter in our walk, as it says in 1 Peter 3.15. Let us do so to the glory of the Lord who bestowed his wonderful grace upon us. I've got a, uh, yeah, a grandbaby coming in uh, about two and a half more months, right? 
And I'm already thinking, how can I talk to this child about Jesus? I mean, it has to be passed on. This world's going to come at that little child like you can't believe. It's going to come at her like you can't believe. And if we're not willing to step forward and tell her about it now, by the time she's sick, she's going to want to have her gender changed. This is an insane world that we have entered into. Please understand that you are responsible for your family members, for your children, for your grandchildren, to at least talk to them, at least tell them about what they need to know. They may reject it, and that's their choice. God doesn't force it on anybody. But we need to be ready early on to tell our children and our grandchildren and those around us about Jesus. You know, I listen to the commentary I type every day. It's put out by several people on several formats, and one of them is Daniel in the UK, and he will often have his children in the sound booth with him while he's doing that. He's raising them up from when they can just speak now some of them are, I don't know how many years he's been doing this, but they're older and they, they can read the verses, no problem. But he's got one that he's been having in the sound booth with him that he has to tell the child what to say and then the child repeats it. But that child is learning scripture at a very young age. He's doing the right thing and it's what we need to do. We need to do this. So get the word out to your family, get the word out to the young people around you that there is hope in this world. Because if you don't, there is no hope for them in this world. Call on Jesus today, be reconciled to him, accept his pardon, and God will save you. Our closing verse comes from Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. Next week is Joshua 24. It's verses 29 through 33. Our trip through the book has been hugely fun. It's entitled Joshua, the son of Nun. That'll be our 58th and final Joshua sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It is he who has defeated the enemy and who now offers his people rest. And boy, do we need it. I see my brother yawning. I'm so tired this week. I thought it was all behind me. And I tell you what, this week I've been so physically tired. I haven't been able to think by the end of each day. So he offers us rest that we will find eternally fulfilling. Amen. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? I got a poem here for you, but I have a question, and I'm absolutely certain that somebody will get this. I'm absolutely certain of it. So get ready and raise your hand, because somebody will get it, and I don't want two people fighting. Let me get this out. We got a, from Wawa, something from Wawa. Okay, Jeroboam established false worship in Israel and constituted a festival. When was that festival held? It was a long time ago. You get nothing for that. Come on, somebody's got to get this. Well, that's not bad. It's not August, but it's, it, it, that's not a bad guess. No, it, yeah, okay. I'm going to tell you what. The festival, the Festival of Tabernacles was held on to the 15th day of the seventh month. And he wanted to change the worship, get it away from Israel, so the, from Jerusalem, so they wouldn't go down and worship there. Okay? So he instituted his own priests. Ask where? Uh, Dan and Beersheba. Dan and Beersheba. I know, that's too easy. Oh, so whatever. he had false calves in Dan and Beersheba, and he changed the month from the 15th day of the seventh month to the 15th day of 
the eighth month. Does anybody remember that? No. Oh, come on. I thought, I thought this is a goner. Fifteenth day of the eighth month. He wanted to change the worship away from that which is centered on the Lord in Jerusalem so that he would have control over the people. Okay, and that was the beginning of the downfall of Israel. All the way through the kings, it says, yet he did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. He says it again and again and again and again. And Israel suffered because of it. Okay, I got a poem here for you, for he is a holy God, part three. So the people answered and said, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods, we would be flipped. For the Lord our God is he who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt. From the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight, leaving the enemy aghast, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. Then the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelt in the land, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God, ever near at hand. But Joshua said to the people, you cannot serve the Lord as surely as I live, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not your transgressions nor your sins forgive. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you. Hear my word after he has done you good. And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourselves this day that you have chosen the Lord for yourselves to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. So we say, now, therefore, he said, put away the foreign gods, which are among you. So to you, I tell and incline your heart to the Lord God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua on that day, the Lord our God, we will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Yes, down Shechem way. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, his infallible word. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, behold, this stone shall be a witness to us not to defraud. For he has heard all the words of the Lord, which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. They did start. Lord God, turn our hearts to be obedient to your word. Give us wisdom to be ever faithful to you. May we carefully heed each thing we have heard. Yes, Lord God, may our hearts be faithful and true. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this lesson. We thank you that all the way through Israel's history, grace was bestowed upon them. And even to this day, that is true. They're under law. They asked for the law. They are obligated to the law until they come to the true grace, which is found in Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that it's going to be a difficult path and many are going to be swept away in the process. And that's true for the whole world, Lord, because we have just rejected the simplicity and the beauty and the glory of what you have done in Jesus. Help us to get this word out so that people will hear, they will be saved, and they will come to you by the multitudes. Thank you for the ministry in Pakistan where nine more lives have come to you in the past week. Thank you for those who are diligent as missionaries around the world. Thank you for people that are willing to hand out tracts or to simply tell somebody about Jesus when the time is right, when they have the moment to just speak that they are speaking. 
Thank you for this, Lord. Help us each to be that way so that people will know and be saved. Jesus is the way. We believe that. Help us to pass that message on while there's time. Thank you, God, for this wonderful saving message found in Jesus. Amen.